Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, listeners. This is Hallie Tecco, host of the Heart of Healthcare podcast. Today, I'm at the Rock Health Summit virtual series, and I'm talking to Jessica Miladi Rivera, who is an infectious disease epidemiologist and science communicator with over 400,000 followers on Instagram. Her specialty is in translating complex scientific concepts into impactful, judgment-free, and accessible information for a diverse audience. Throughout the pandemic, she has served as the science communication lead for the COVID tracking project at The Atlantic. And currently she is a research fellow at Boston Children's Hospital, an infection preventionist at Netflix, a senior advisor to the Pandemic Prevention Institute at the Rockefeller Foundation, and an expert contributor to news outlets across the world. Jessica, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So we were supposed to spend today talking about monkeypox, and we will spend a lot of time talking about monkeypox. But since we scheduled this interview, there has been a case of polio in New York. What on earth is going on? Yeah. You know, didn't at all predict this in my what's going to happen in 2022. Um, well, didn't you, know. you learn that we shouldn't make predictions? Anyways? <laughs> Touché. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I should have, I should have learned. Um, but the, the triple whammy of COVID monkeypox and polio has been, has been a lot. And the saddest part about the new case of polio is how preventable it was. You know, we have had decades of disease elimination in this country which means, you know, no transmission, not having to worry about new outbreaks because our vaccination rates are extraordinarily high on a national level. But when you start to look on a micro level, you'll see pockets in different populations that have extraordinarily low vaccination rates. And those all, those are, make us all susceptible. They, they bring us all um, at risk of what's just now happened. So should we be worried for young children who haven't yet gone through the polio vaccine routine or how, how worried should we be? I don't think we necessarily should be worried if you are on track to be on schedule for the four doses for your child. Typically children are fully vaccinated by the time they enter, enter kindergarten. That's usually the goal of that fourth dose happening before they turn uh, five or six. So if your kid is on track, I wouldn't worry about it. You know, it is a very infectious disease. It is um, through fecal oral contamination. So we're talking about water sources. We're talking about food sources in places where there is an outbreak. And right now it hasn't been systemically identified. It is noticed in, you've probably seen the wastewater 
of data that shows it is in the New York system. And that's because that case was identified in Rockland County. You know, if you are in that area, I would say keep your kid, you know, on schedule. Uh, you can't accelerate that that vaccination schedule, unfortunately. But if you are an adult and you don't know your vaccination status, I would encourage you to get vaccinated. And if you are in a community that will be, you know, you'll be in a community that has active outbreaks. If you're traveling to a place, there is a recommendation to get a booster. But that said, I think the general public is probably okay. What we need to make sure though, is that this doesn't spread any further. The fact that this one case is paralyzed means that there's probably hundreds of other cases that have not been identified. Yeah. Do we know if this person caught it here or abroad? The working theory, I believe, is that the person likely was exposed to somebody from overseas who probably had the OPV, the oral polio vaccine. Now, the difference between OPV and IPV, which is what we use in the United States, is that OPV is actually a live virus vaccine. And so in you know very, very extraordinarily rare cases, it can revert to an active infection. It can revert to a polio infection. And when that happens, you can basically shed infectious virus to people who are not who are susceptible. So this person was an unvaccinated person in the United States who probably got exposed through a viral shed from somebody who got OPV vaccination. OPV is an an amazing vaccine. It's, it's widely used across the world. It's very effective when you have high vaccination rates, but then there's these moments of, of risk and it happened. Well, we'll keep our eyes on polio and take these lessons about the importance of vaccination with us. And now I want to talk about monkeypox. So there has been a lot of misinformation about monkeypox since July when the World Health Organization officially designated it as a public health emergency of international concern. Mm-hmm. So the term monkeypox is a misnomer. Let's let's start there. Yes. So right, like the virus doesn't start in monkeys, and actually this term could generate racism and stigma. Um, totally. Why haven't we changed the name? Let's start there. Ooh, that's a very political question, unfortunately. Uh, the naming of diseases is has a long history in kind of like where it was first identified and who identified it. And while there was a incidence where it was identified in monkeys and that's why it was called that, the kind of reservoir, the working understanding of where this disease kind of like lives is the rodent population. And that is something that I've seen a number of swirling headlines about, they're going to change it. It's going to be changed, but there's these kind of hiccups. I'm not privy to a lot of those conversations. I know that the WHO is working on it, but it, it shouldn't be this hard and it should be renamed because you're right. It does have connotations that could uh, result in very, very problematic stigmas and you know racist tropes. And the last thing we need for a disease that is already, if you've seen in the data recently, disproportionately affecting people of color, we don't need any more opportunities for people to speak poorly about an infectious disease. Absolutely. And there was um, an article I read that showed that harassment and hate crimes against the LGBTQ community are on the rise. Yep. And so a lot of that is, you know, suggested that perhaps that's tied to the stigma surrounding monkeypox because it is, it has been widespread within that community. Right. I mean, an infectious disease does not discriminate. It doesn't know that it is spreading through this population, right? It it was an opportunistic outbreak, right? It happened in a a very close proximity setting with people who were in the LGBTQ plus community, but it does not mean it is specific to them or specific to that type of behavior. I think even understanding the fact that this is not an STI is still difficult for people to understand. Yeah. I feel like that's one of the big myths floating around. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it is a very effective disease to transmit through sexual contact, but we're talking about close, prolonged, direct contact with an infectious, symptomatic person. That can happen to anybody of any sexual orientation, of any age, of any ethnicity. Okay. So it it spreads via close contact. You and I both just sent our children back to school. Mm-hmm. What do you think is going to happen now that kids are who are in close contact, especially those young ones um, going back to school or college students who are living in yeah. close quarters and getting <laughs> snuggling up with one, with one another? Yeah. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Are we, are we at risk of this becoming more widespread? If I had to rank where my concern was, I would say that college campuses are probably a lot more concerning than our kids' elementary schools. And that's because college campuses are where people are living and sleeping in close quarters and having lots of sexual contact and lots of sexual partners and very different kind of cohabitation environment than, say, kids who are going to elementary school for a few hours a day. Like I said, the route of transmission is direct, you know, prolonged contact with an infectious and symptomatic person. So can you say what you mean by prolonged contact? You know, not a passing fleeting interaction with somebody. So you're not going to get it from like walking by somebody with monkeypox. You're not going to get it from having a quick chat with somebody. We're talking about very intimate contact, but I don't mean intimate in sexual context only. Yeah. So, and it's typically in direct contact with a lesion, with a, you know, an infection infectious part of that, the way that the disease disease manifests. And that can be in the mouth, it can be on the hands, it can be on, you know, your body, it can be in your genitals. And so there has been questions about how do we protect children? Children are very close contact. They touch each other all the time. There's lots of bodily fluids happening sometimes at school. (laughs) Um, But again, I think that the this would be where we have to kind of think about the community as a whole. And if there are parents or caregivers who are high risk, the recommendation is that they get vaccinated. If they are symptomatic, that they would kind of, you know, isolate properly and and make sure that people around them in their close contact are not having contact with other people just in case they transmitted the disease. But the hope is that through vaccination strategies, we can hopefully slow the transmission that's happening. But again, children as a cohort don't represent a very high risk population in that sense. Okay, so the vaccine, comparing it to the COVID vaccine, where we know you can still get COVID, even if you're vaccinated, can you still get monkeypox if you get vaccinated? It's a very, very effective vaccine. Um, and if you get it before exposure, the risk of infection is dramatically reduced, which is wonderful, um, especially with the Genios vaccine. Uh, right now, the biggest concern, though, is that people not getting fully vaccinated in time. So because of the shortage of the vaccine supply, they're talking about dividing the doses into fifths and doing the injections transdermally so that people can have just enough of that protection to prevent the lesions from uh, you know, the body identifying the antigen and preventing lesions from ever occurring. But again, that requires a special kind of skill too to be able to do that type of vaccination. And not all places have the same amount of doses available for the population that they're trying to serve. I know that some places like LA have a lot of doses and they can able, they're can they able to extend eligibility, but some places are still scrambling and having to prioritize first doses before they can give people second doses. And that creates some vulnerabilities. And what is the incubation period and are you contagious during that period? The incubation period can vary. Uh, I have heard from, you know, a number of sources that it can be a few days, it can be a few weeks. Sometimes the problem is that people don't manifest in the same way of the disease in in the sense that like some people may have one lesion, some people may have hundreds of lesions, some people may experience fever and uh, malaise and all the other kind of flu-like symptoms and some people might not. So it can vary, especially if you're talking about very non- 
kind of obvious lesions that might look like a small pimple, um, or maybe even in a place that you're not necessarily looking every day where that could happen. But yes, you can be infectious when you are in the kind of pre-symptomatic phase in the sense that like you could have lesions that not, just not see them, right? Like they could be small, they could be in places that you can't see, and that would be considered an active infection. And what do we know about the r not? Well, actually, first off, maybe explain what r not is. And then, yeah, let's yeah. talk about how it compares to polio and COVID. Yeah. So r not is the reproductive value of a disease in the sense that you can try to determine if one person, if one person is infectious, how many people could that person infect? And then it's a exponential growth after that. So if one person infects eight people, we're talking about an extraordinarily high infectious rate of each then each eight people then can infect another eight people, then it goes on and on and on. Has there been something that's that infectious? Um there my goodness, I think measles is probably one of the most wow. high. Okay. And and to kind of set level set, where what would the flu be at? So the flu is it varies. I've seen estimates of it being like one to five. Okay. Um, or one Probably to three. Depends on, yeah, it, depen- depends it depends. On I think R not also assumes that a population is vulnerable, meaning that there aren't people vaccinated. So it's really difficult to actually determine things like R not, even for COVID now that the population is decently vaccinated. The R not implies that like nobody is safe, and how can this spread in an in an unprotected population? And flu too kind of makes that complicated to calculate. But monkeypox is not as you know, infectious as a say respiratory virus in the sense that you could, you will really require very close contact with somebody. And, and when we talk about monkeypox as a disease, we're not calling it airborne. You know, it can, it can definitely spread through respiratory droplets. If you're in close, close contact with somebody who is, you know, spraying you with their respiratory droplets, but it's not the same thing as saying like measles, for instance, which is an airborne disease, which can have infectious aerosols lingering in the air for Mm. hours and hours. I mean, that's why you get a notification that, you know, somebody had measles who was passing through your local airport because that disease can actually remain in the air. That's not the case with monkeypox. Okay. You have to be making out. Basically, you have to be very close contact, (laughs) sharing, sharing, you know, um, intimate linens and stuff like towels and bed sheets and all that stuff. So the R not is lower than COVID. Yes. So Africa has been dealing with outbreaks of monkeypox since the 70s. Why did it take the outbreak in Europe and the U.S. for it to receive this sort of international attention? That is a great question. In many ways, this is kind of a another example of how we don't care about things that don't affect us. <laughs> and we think that there are other country problems. You know, Nigeria has been dealing with, you know, it's endemic in lots of places in Africa. And Nigeria has been dealing with a really difficult kind of recurring outbreak of monkeypox. And there were some signs a few years ago, I think it was back in 2017, where we could have listened to some of the clues of the disease mutating a bit and increasing its ability to infect multiple different species. And when you have that kind of zoonotic spillover, which is when a disease can jump from species to species, you are dealing with something that's a lot harder to contain. One of the reasons why diseases with multiple species or multiple reservoirs cannot be eradicated is because it's just got so many variations of the disease. It's, it's been able to adapt itself to infect different things. So that's why smallpox was eradicated because it only affects humans. Polio could be eradicated because it only affects humans. Monkeypox, sadly, is one of those diseases that cannot because it has become 
you know, established enough and enough in, in multiple species that it gets really complicated to complete, completely eradicate, but we could eliminate it. And we had opportunities to help send doses of vaccines that instead expired millions and millions of doses in our stockpile that could have gone to Africa, that could have gone to Nigeria over the last several years. And we could have really gotten ahead of what's happened today. Um, but we ignored those indicators and those warnings. And that's really, really oh, devastating. I have the chills about that. That's yeah. What a disappointment. How does that happen? Just administratively, we just don't have our act together? Or is it like the request is denied because we think we might need it, but we just let it expire? It's a million dollar question. I think that this is, it goes back to how the United States has a very weird relationship with public health. We, we do. don't that's, value that's it. That's to say it. Weird. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, we have seen it just over time become politicized. Um, and I've also said very publicly that I believe science and public health are political because we require the science, the data from science and public health to inform politics, but it's politicization is what's made it so messy and so weird. And I think that the fact that we've defunded and devalued it in the form of not having pandemic preparedness be a pillar of our public health system and not having data infrastructure as something that we could have, you know, relied on for understanding COVID in the United States. Those are just examples of how we don't think about public health as a global issue and as a security issue. And that's really unfortunate because infectious diseases don't care about national borders. They don't care about who's a citizen, citizen where. They're just looking for bodies to infect. And one person infected in one continent can be, because of amazing travel and globalization, can be across the universe or across, across the world in a few hours and bring that disease to a vulnerable population. And I think that when we look at the way we've treated Africa as a continent, racism, bias, you know, not our problem, fill in the blank of really terrible thinking and otherism is probably to blame for why we haven't thought about their problems as being a global problem. We'll be right back after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, so let's talk about vaccines being political. You mentioned it first, and um, I've seen data that we are seeing a divide between political parties and willingness to get the vaccine. Like that wasn't the case pre-COVID. This is something that has happened since COVID. I would argue that there have been a lot of efforts from a loud minority of anti-vaccine groups that have um, looked at religious groups as an opportunity to kind of hijack. They've looked at political groups as, uh, you know, a good community to penetrate. And that's been happening over the last few decades. I think what happened in COVID is that it kind of exploded because this is the first time we were dealing with a vaccine that was newly developed at a really fast pace, not too fast in the sense that sure. we're not skipping any steps. It sure. was just when there's an emergency, this impressively is impressively fast. Impressively like, fast. Yeah. We have Warp speed, some might say. <laughs> Whoever was in that room who came up with that name, <laughs> I'd love to have, I'd love to talk to them. But when we think about when we do have systems in place for emergencies, like emergency use authorization is intended for emergencies. So when we did let's, you know, all hands on deck. Here's a full stream of, of billions of dollars. We're not going to skip anything, but we're going to make sure that there's no bureaucratic red tape. I mean, if you've been familiar with the clinical trial process, it can take years because of bureaucracy and red tape and because people aren't interested in the trials and because there isn't money to continue from phase one to phase two, phase three. All of those things were not the case with COVID. There was a ton of money, ton of interest so much virus that they were able to meet those endpoints quite quickly. So it moving fast, if anything, was kind of like the perfect, you know, it's, I've described it as like the best case scenario for a group project where everybody did their part. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it was very easy for those groups to turn this into a red versus blue issue, a science versus, you know, whatever logical fallacy you want to put on the opposite yeah. end. Of Anti-science. Anti-science, you know, yeah. na- appeal to nature fallacy, whatever it was. And I think even the polio case is an example of this slow trickling in of extremism that Mm -hmm. hijacks communities. I mean, this, this case happened in a very religious Orthodox community in Rockland County that for years has been the victim of anti-vax groups going in, hosting like telephone hotlines that just spew vaccine misinformation and conspiracies and has really, really. What's in it for them? Just a lot of things. A lot of times it's a snake oil salesperson, right? Who's going to tell you don't follow mainstream science, don't follow consensus of science and buy these supplements instead Ah, or do this alternative vaccine. Or here's an opportunity to stand for your religious freedom and make this a religious exemption. There are very few religions that would actually disqualify you from getting a vaccine, but people love to turn that into an opportunity to to exercise their freedom. And so we, we were seeing the measles outbreak that happened a few years ago was a consequence of that same thing. These hotlines were targeting, uh, you know, stay-at-home moms in this religious community who were on the phone just listening for hours and hours of a, of a charlatan just spewing misinformation. And it's really, really sad because I, you know, just the other day I spoke to somebody who said, well, you know, you just can't believe these politicians. In a conversation we were talking about vaccines, right? 
And it's just amazing to me that that's where the conversation goes so quickly. It becomes the first names you hear are Trump or Biden instead of things like infectious and antigen and antibodies, like the the typical words you'd hear when you're talking about a vaccine. I think also this is where it shows that the United States just does not think about science communication as a priority. It's often an afterthought. We spent billions of dollars on Operation Warp Speed. We spent exactly zero on a communications plan to support Operation Warp Speed, to help states create rollouts for these vaccines. And instead, each state was fending for themselves. Each public health department was fending for themselves. And it drives me crazy because that's the last mile, right? The last mile. Vaccines don't save lives. Vaccinations do. And vaccinations can only happen if people have trust and confidence in what they're about to do. And it's not helpful if if one state's very effective at it and the other states aren't. I mean, it's not if we're travel. trying to reach, yeah. you know, herd immunity, which was another thing. Like again, if we had science and data literacy or or just even understanding of these words, then people wouldn't turn them into, oh, well, I believe in this because that politician said, said so. Herd immunity. What what percent of the population needs to be vaccinated to reach herd immunity, and how far are we from it with COVID? I think the conversation at this point has passed because the Mm. virus has mutated so many times and we have just barely, barely two years in reached 70% vaccination, I think, in the United States with a very, very low rate of people um, taking boosters. I think the last time I checked was that the eligible population was only 30% boosted or 40% boosted, between 30 and 40%. When you have those dynamics of high transmission, mediocre vaccination, you're not really getting to a point where the disease can actually be outsmarted or kind of slowed down. Not to mention the fact that the disease has mutated enough, the virus has mutated enough that things like immunity are not as black and white. And immunity was never black and white. And I think that this is another thing that was kind of lost in the science communication opportunity of the vaccine. The vaccine was always, always intended to do two main things, to prevent severe illness and hospitalizations and to prevent deaths. I think people are looking at it as, well, people are still getting sick with the vaccine. And you're like, yeah, but they're not dying. And that is a really, really amazing goal to have for a vaccine. In the same way that the flu vaccine doesn't necessarily prevent flu, but it just makes it less horrible. Thinking of it from like Cheryl in Iowa, who is didn't study science, didn't study medicine. From her perspective, if we think about her experience through this pandemic, I think we thought we thought and we had hoped that the vaccine would prevent infection. So we did. that was something that we were let down on. It still has been incredibly effective, but it, it has not stopped the spread the way we had hoped. And let's not forget the messaging from the CDC that has Absolutely. been inconsistent and difficult Absolutely. to follow. So for someone who has their, their trust in our system has gone down, is it even possible to win back their trust? That's such an important question and important topic because something we study in public health is social determinants of health. And those things are not those tangibles of a vaccine or a mask or even a mitigation policy like social distancing. Those social determinants of health are things like trust. And when trust is the currency that is kind of being like just spent <laughs> frivolously or not cared for, not you know treated as precious, it makes it really difficult for people to then adopt those much more tangible practical skills and mitigation efforts to prevent themselves from getting sick. And 
Uh, I think we have a long road ahead of us of reestablishing trust in public health and reestablishing trust in science. I think that there is a fine balance that I've had to have in my work so as to not just add more fuel to the fire of, say, the politicals, political talking heads who are the DC Duranos type of the like, oh, let's just drain the government because they're getting too much money. Let's like cancel the CDC. That's not the goal. But do I think the CDC has a lot of work to do to fix themselves? Yes. And I was pleasantly surprised to see Dr. Walensky say what she said this week, which was that they need to prioritize things like transparency and accountability and communication. And then, which was pretty ironic, timeliness. Timeliness two and a half years later to talk about is a bit hard, especially as somebody who worked on a project that in some ways felt like we were doing the CDC's job. And is it going to happen overnight? No, but there are many steps. And I think that there are many leaders who are stepping up to help do that. I think one of the things we have to do too is to talk about how not equitable health is in this country. And we need to be listening to different voices that don't all look the same and elevate those voices because public health experts have, it's been pretty homogenous for a long time. Yeah, it certainly has been. So, I mean, one thing that we learn in public health and in science is that you have to be willing to change your mind in the face of new evidence. Yeah. But I think that's really hard to do when you're a communicator because you're con- you're you're given data and you're sharing that data in a way that your followers can understand. But then if you're given new information, people will call you a hypocrite or say you're changing the tune on me. How do you handle that in in your outreach on social media as you're trying yeah. to navigate best practices for people? Yeah, I think one of the most important ways to establish trust is to be really honest. And being honest sometimes means admitting that you're wrong or admitting that things have changed or admitting that you may, you know, you are changing or that the policy is changing and being really transparent about that. I think people who don't admit that they could be fallible are problematic. You know, the ones who are screaming with emojis in their messaging that they are absolutely, you know, accurate about this 100%. It's, it's really scary because there's a lot of gray. There's a lot of nuance in public health and science does evolve. And the scientific process requires, like you said, that flexibility of adapting. And I think that it's important to say things like, I don't know, or we don't know yet, or this is still kind of emerging. This is preliminary data or the data changed over time because of these variables. Those are things that I think establish trust when said at the right time, instead of looking back and saying, look at the CDC flip-flopping on masks. No, it wasn't flip-flopping. It was, they didn't have information. They had a policy without the information. Then they got information and they changed it. And it hasn't changed since then. Yeah. As far as like people to, yeah, it's very hard for people to understand (laughs) because it just looks like political flip-flopping, which is a catchphrase that we've used for decades. So what sort of precautions are you still taking for your family as it comes to COVID and now monkeypox and polio and whatever else comes our way? Okay. I always like to remind folks that my risk tolerance is very low because I have young children at home. Two out of my three children are fully vaccinated, which I'm very grateful for, but I have a three and a half month old as well. And that three and a half month old is not yet eligible for vaccination. So because of that, we are still doing a lot of the things that I think a lot of other folks are willing to kind of be more relaxed on. I would say before she was born, I still had a really low tolerance because I was pregnant. But before that, you know, I was starting to feel, especially as transmission was lower, that we could do some more things. But I would say today, in light of BA4, BA5, the vaccination status of my household, 
the fact that we're back to school, which is just another kind of influx of different infectious diseases, we are still masking all the time indoors. Both of my kids who are in school are wearing masks all day and their teachers are as well and their, and their peers, which really grateful for. I understand that that's very much a San Francisco, you know, luxury (laughs) in that sense. You know, we are staying up to date on our vaccinations. So my daughter is boosted. My son uh, is not yet eligible for a booster, but when he is, he'll get one. We are trying to do most things outdoors. And again, the benefit of living in the the Bay, we have amazing weather. Yeah. Yeah. Like 11 and a half months of the year. It's wonderful to be outside. So, um, it's, it's a lot of the same for us. And I think that that kind of muscle memory doesn't bother me. I've gotten very used to it. My kids have gotten very used to it. I think I feel like the cost is worth it because I am trying to prevent long COVID for myself and my family. Now there aren't perfect ways to do that, but we have found that this combination of, of mitigation for our household works for now. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about long COVID and why you want to avoid it. What do we know about who is at highest risk of getting long COVID of those who catch COVID? I don't think that there's a simple answer to that question. I think that there are people who are healthy without pre-existing conditions or who aren't immunocompromised and medically fragile who are getting long COVID. And there are people who are, have those things and are getting long COVID. So there are people it seems, who have, it's seemingly random. It's seemingly random. There may be some things that could give you a higher kind of proclivity to getting it, but mm-hmm. that's not been standardized because again, the data is also really, really hard to understand. There's mm-hmm. not a specific single definition of long COVID, right? There are are some understandings of, you know, a persistence of symptoms that last beyond four weeks. Some people recover and then bounce back, right? I'm not talking about Paxlovid rebound. I'm talking about people who like get sick again, or like just their symptoms kind of resurface when they start working out and they realize that their aerobic capacity is not the same. I want to avoid long COVID because of all the unknowns, right? And I I actually have very close relationships with dear friends and family members who have long COVID and their journeys are really difficult. And it's very unknown as well. They don't know if they'll fully recover ever. They don't know if they'll regain um, some of their abilities. And that's scary to me. So even though I know that there's not a perfect way to prevent it, everything that I do, I know is at least one step to reduce my risk, knowing that I can't eliminate it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So are we in a pandemic era? Like, is this just like, I feel like my whole, you know, I'm almost 40. I can't, obviously there's nothing in my lifetime or your lifetime that has been like the last two and a half years. And now hearing the stories of polio, monkeypox, is this a trend or is this just random that it's hit us all at once? You know, I would say that we have been in a pandemic era for longer than a lot of people think. If you look back at the last 10 years, we've actually lived through a number of pandemics. 2009, H1N1 was a pandemic. Zika was, yeah. a pa- Zika was a pandemic. Yeah. You know, we've lived through them, but, but pandemics of destabilizing nature are the once in a century type. And I think that that rate of those types of pandemics, it has the risk of accelerating mostly because of things like climate change. And and there's a really direct intersection between our relationship with animals, our relationship with ecosystems and environments that can expedite the process in which spillover can happen again. And that is probably where pandemic era might seem like we're on a fat, like increasingly faster race towards more diseases, which is un, you know unfortunate. But we've actually been living through a few. And the hope is that 
we're better at early detection and early containment so that they don't become as destabilizing as COVID-19. I think COVID-19 was a horrible example of the consequence of not being prepared and a horrible example of how, you know, diminishing science and diminishing early indicators and warnings can cause really preventable loss. I mean, the fact that over a million people died in the the United States and at least knowing that maybe three or 400,000 of those deaths could have been prevented through vaccination uh, is something that we'll live with, I think, for generations. And we'll look back at this as a horrible, horrible uh, misstep. Hopefully, hopefully we, we don't just continue living with it. And the hope too is that like with innovation and vaccine science, mRNA technology is super exciting. And the hope is that mRNA technology could revolutionize how we respond to coronaviruses as a family of virus. And that would be really exciting because this is the third time a coronavirus has caused a pandemic between SARS and MERS and now SARS-CoV-2. Three is a lot for for a family of viruses. And it wouldn't be surprising if we had another one. So if we can maybe get a pan-coronavirus vaccine or mucosal vaccines, those are options that give me hope and don't make me feel like we're despairing into just endless pandemics. I'll keep my fingers crossed for that. So how can people follow your work and listen to more of your insights? Um, I do a lot of my science communication on Instagram. I've, I've very reluctantly did that. I I felt like in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of my friends who knew my education, which was specifically on like pandemics and emerging infectious diseases, were texting me like, is this what you were talking about like 10 years ago? Oh shit. Now people are actually interested in my work. Literally, I remember being yeah. at parties and being like, so what are you studying and what are you afraid of? I'm like, oh, you know, like a pandemic that like a respiratory virus that like takes over the world. And here we are. It's like a never ending Super Bowl for me. And I started doing stories to kind of answer questions that I was getting repeatedly in my text messages. And I thought, I'll just do it here so that more people can see it and turn into a whole thing. So I would say my Instagram stories in particular um, is where I do a lot of my you know, explanation of the headlines, if there's emerging data, preprints, misinformation that I'm debunking, a lot of it happens there. I do some of my stuff on Twitter, but I would say the bulk of that calm stuff is on Instagram. Amazing. Jessica, thank you so much for being here today. This was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. I loved it. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Heart of Healthcare. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. The Heart of Healthcare is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Brianna Seeley. Our host is Hallie Tecco. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Brianna Seeley. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.